I am eager to preach the gospel today from Philippians chapter 1 and would like to invite you to please turn there with me. Philippians chapter 1. Today we begin a sermon series on Philippians that will go into the beginning of summer. Uh, it's a series called Gospel Happiness. And those two words really capture uh, two of the main themes of this letter. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the happiness or joy in the Lord that transcends all circumstances. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher from the last century, says Philippians is the happiest letter Paul ever wrote. And it's my prayer that God would use this letter to lead us more fully into a life of joy, a life of gospel happiness. There are times at the outset of a sermon series that I enjoy having us pray together through a song. There's a song that we sing called Speak, O Lord. Do we have the lyrics to that? Good. If I could invite everyone to stand, I just want us to sing this song together as a prayer, not only for today, but for this entire sermon series, uh, that God would meet with each one of us and, and build his church as only he can do. You can remain standing for the reading of God's word, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless, for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You may be seated. Our sermon title is A People Shaped by Grace. It was around 49 AD that the Apostle Paul along with some of his co-workers, Timothy was with him, Luke was with him, and Silas was as well. These brothers were taking the gospel to new places. 
They came to a city in the district of Macedonia that was a Roman colony, and on the Sabbath, they found a group of Jewish women gathered for prayer by the river. They shared the gospel with these women. They shared the message of salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and a woman named Lydia was saved by the power of that gospel. Sometime later in the same city, Paul cast a demon out of a harassed slave girl who was oppressed. Paul and Silas ended up being beaten and thrown in prison. And in one of my favorite scenes in all of Scripture, in the middle of the night, in the dark, Paul and Silas were singing hymns. And the prisoners were listening. Who are these men joyfully singing in prison in the night? An earthquake opened the doors and loosened the bonds of all the prisoners. A jailer was going to kill himself in that moment, but Paul said, none of us have left. You're good. We're all right here. They shared the gospel with the jailer. That jailer and his family were saved. All of this took place in Philippi, according to Acts 16, which we heard read today and was the beginning of the church that received this letter that we are now studying. Over ten years later, Paul is again in prison, and he writes to this beloved church. And here in these words, throughout these rich, joy-filled four chapters, not only is Paul addressing the church in Philippi, but God himself is addressing us today in his holy and authoritative word. From the very opening words of the letter, God is doing a reset on our identity. Who are you? Who am I as a Christian? Well, this is who we are as Christians. We are, verse 1, servants and slaves of Christ Jesus. We are the saints of God, his holy people. We are in Christ Jesus. We are united to Him. God is reminding us of who we are. Paul does not say to the big fat sinners in Philippi, although that would have been true enough, it misses the fundamental identity of the Christian. Who are we? We are servants of Christ. We are saints of the living God. We are those who belong to Him. We are the recipients, verse 2, of grace and peace. Which means that though we deserve the wrath of God for our many sins, we have received free and undeserved blessings in Christ Jesus. The great purpose of this introduction is to trumpet our identity in Christ and to drive this identity into our hearts, and into our minds. I wonder, friends, is this how you view yourself? When you consider who you are, is this what comes to mind? Your identity is not the worst things you have done. You are not unloved. You are not without hope. Christian, you belong to Christ Jesus. You are a servant of Christ Jesus, made holy in Him, united to Jesus Christ, a recipient of of grace and peace. 
I, I almost preached a whole sermon today on those first two verses as I thought about how to approach this Sunday. And what almost drove me there, in fact, is the threefold repetition of the name of Christ Jesus in the space of those two verses. Did you see that? While some popular leaders and Christian books seem to never get around to mentioning the name of Jesus... Here, this standard ancient greeting is shot through with the name of Christ our Savior. And the reason is because he is the theme of this letter. To live is Christ. We rejoice even in suffering. We rejoice in Christ. Our identity is in Christ. Our hope is not in this world. It's in Christ. He is our life. Verse 2 reminds us that grace has come. Grace and peace. And then grace is repeated in verse 7 where it says we are partakers of grace. Now what I want us to consider today from this opening passage is this question. What does it mean to be a people shaped by the grace of God in Christ Jesus? Grace has come to us. We've received it freely. God has not dealt with us according to our sins. He has made us his own. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Your debt has been paid. All of this is the riches of the grace of God. You are a partaker of the grace of God. And now, question, what does it mean to be a people shaped by the grace of God? What difference does the grace of God make in the church? And I intentionally ask this question not about the individual believer alone but about the church collectively because Paul is writing to a church and the primary application throughout this letter as we study it together is not the individual but the church. What does it mean to be a people shaped by grace? Those who are partakers of the grace of God. Three points from verses 3 through 11. And may God even now accomplish by his spirit and by his power. May he accomplish each one of these things in our lives. First, grumbling is replaced with joy-filled gratitude. Grumbling, not just in our words, but in our hearts, grumbling is replaced with joy-filled gratitude. And this is verses 3 through 6. Paul is in prison. It's not going too well for him. He's in prison, but where does he begin? He is suffering, but where does he begin? Life is hard, but where does he begin? The starting point is not all that he is suffering. The starting point is a greeting, as we saw in the first two verses, packed full of gospel identity in Christ. And now, verse 3 and following, an expression of thanksgiving to God. In prison, I thank my God. And he says, he prays with joy. Just as he was praying and singing in prison years before. The great mark of Christian maturity is gratitude. Let our homes and our marriages and our friendships be free from all complaining and discontentment. Why do others have more 
than I do? Why do others get things that I don't get? Why is my life so difficult? So much grumbling in our hearts for which we ought to repent and learn from the Apostle Paul to practice gratitude. You have to understand, Paul's not putting something on here. This is a window into how he is doing. If, if you could sit down with Paul while he was in prison and have a conversation with him, you would leave that interaction with this deep impression. Here is a genuinely grateful man. Here is a man who is thankful. And the same should be true of us. To the extent that Christ has overwhelmed us with his grace and peace, our hearts should be overwhelmed with thanksgiving to God. We have reason to thank him. What, are, what is it that Paul thanks God for? Well, he looks to the past and thanks God for the relational history that he has with these brothers and sisters over the years. He looks to the past and he remembers and he praises God. Verse 5 says, from the first day. I read that phrase and I think of the brothers and sisters who planted this church in 1984. From the first day. I've seen a number of them this morning. From the first day. We thank God for them. And we thank God for the relational history, the longevity that so many of us share in being a part of the story of what God is doing in his church. Paul also looks at the present. He looks at the past, then he looks at the present and sees a gospel partnership that continues for which he thanks God, a partnership from the first day until now. There are, in this letter, six references to koinonia, partnership, fellowship, which makes that a major theme of this short letter. The Christian life is not lived autonomously. It is rather lived in meaningful community with others, in fellowship, in partnership. And then Paul also looks to the future, thanking God for the work that God will continue to do. Verse 6, glorious verse, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. That's a look to the future. So what... Paul is doing here, this is what this means. He's able to look at the past and the present and the future and find reasons in every place for joy-filled gratitude to God. That means for us today, your memory of the past and your hope for the future should contribute to the presence of joy-filled gratitude in your heart today. We have reason to exchange grumbling and complaining for joy-filled gratitude. Second mark of a people shaped by grace, selfishness is replaced with Christ-like affection. Selfishness is replaced with Christ-like affection. In verses 7 and 8, oh, and it moves my heart every time I read it, we have what is perhaps one of the greatest overflows of affection that we see in all of Paul's letters. He says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. What engages your emotions in life? There's nothing wrong with sports or current events engaging your emotions. Many things in life will engage our emotions. But I hope that part of what you feel deeply about is other people. 
There is, a, there is a right and wrong way to feel about others in your life. Paul says it's right for me to feel this way. The wrong way to feel about others is envy, rivalry, irritability, resentment, bitterness, superiority, pride. But here we have the proper and appropriate way for Christians to think about each other. It's here. It's in this passage. This joy, this passion for people, this affection that holds other believers in our hearts. And he says in verse 8 that he calls God as a witness to his affection. For God is my witness. I'm not just saying this. God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul is not a distant leader. Paul is not a professional pastor. Paul is not a detached church hopper. He yearns for the Christians in this church. He has a genuine, personal affection for the people of God. And do you know what? Do you know no small part of why I'm so affected by this passage is because this is the same love that I have and the pastors have for you. I've been so affected by studying this passage and the reason is because it, it puts into words and captures, it, it gives voice to how I feel about this church family. We had an annual pastoral team retreat that we just came back from and we talked about these verses. And how much this resonates in our hearts. We, we labor to communicate our affection for you. We hold you in our hearts. And the reason for all of our, if you're wondering why did we get into this gig, why are we doing the, the, the pastor thing, it's all driven by love for the people of God. Every sermon, every counseling appointment, Every elders meeting, every decision, every gathering and meeting of the church. Driven by the love that we have for you. We hold you in our hearts and love you very much. And it brings us great joy to know that you hold us in your hearts as well. And that we exist as a congregation with this mutual affection being one of the marks of this congregation. If you're newer to the church, you may think, can that sort of genuine affection really exist among this many people? And the answer is yes. And, and, he, and I'm going to tell you the reason for it. It's, it's actually, there's a phrase in verse 8 that ought to greatly strengthen us and warm our spirits today, and it explains the source of our love for each other. It's that phrase, the affection of Christ Jesus. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. What we see in Paul is a reflection of the heart of Christ for us. Christian affection is the overflow of the affection of Jesus Christ himself. And what is the affection of Christ Jesus? The affection of Christ Jesus is that love that did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped but took the form of a servant and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The affection of Jesus Christ. The affection of Christ Jesus is what moved him to suffer in our place. 
The affection of Christ Jesus is the reason that our debt is paid and paid in full. The affection of Jesus Christ is the heart of Christ in heaven that yearns for us today. The affection of Christ Jesus. Jesus prays for you. For you. Jesus rejoices over you. Jesus Jesus really likes you. We have to put it this way because our hearts are so hard we don't believe it. We don't realize it. We don't live in the good of it. Jesus holds you in his heart and he yearns for you. And the Savior, the Savior looks at you this day. He looks at you and says, it is right for me to feel this way about you. I carry you in my heart. Your name is written on my hand. The Father is a witness to the love I have for you. I Christ says, have set my affection upon you, never to be removed. Marvel at the affection of Christ Jesus. If, if you're discouraged today, if you're coming off of a really difficult week, if, if trials abound in your life, if your soul is downcast, consider this glorious reality. The love of Jesus for you is even more personal and even more passionate than the love Paul displays here. The affection of Christ Jesus. There is no affection in all the world that is greater than the affection of Christ Jesus for sinners. And the more that we understand, we will spend all of our lives and all of eternity going into a deeper understanding of the affection of Christ Jesus. And the deeper we go into a knowledge of that love, the more that love overflows from our lives to others. And we become a community of love because our hearts have been captivated by the affection of Christ Jesus. You cannot live in the good of and comprehend the affection of Christ Jesus without becoming a deeply affectionate person for others. And without having relationships that are shaped by this same love. I wonder, do you have this affection for others in the church? I, I Hope that you notice the text teaches that this affection should not only be present towards some, but toward them all. Some people are easier to love than others. But the call is not to love some, but to love all. In verse 1, he writes to all the saints. Verse 4, he prays for them all. Verse 7, it's right for me to feel this way about you all, not some. For you are all partakers with me of grace. Verse 8, I yearn for you all. What about the people who are totally different from us? What about the people we disagree with? What about the people that we don't understand? What about the people that are difficult to get along with? What about the people who have inconvenienced us? Who have mistreated us? We are called to love as Christ has loved us. And one of the things that God laid on my heart in, in thinking about this quality of love here is the marriages of the church. In particular, this, this quality, the, the, what is described here in this chapter should be the flavor of Christian marriage. Mutual gratitude and joy and prayer and affection. So many of the problems that 
a couple faces in marriage can all be stemmed back to a failure to understand the affection of Christ Jesus and to have that affection overflow in the context of our marriage. Husbands and wives, hold your spouse in your heart. Cultivate this kind of affection. I, we should also note, here's another point of application that comes from Paul's example, is that affection ought to be communicated. When is the last time you communicated your affection for someone? If you, if you never communicate your love for others, that's not just a personality defect, that's a character defect. Um, we're, we're called to be a people of love who express that love to others. And so by the grace of God, may we be a people not marked by selfishness, but have selfishness replaced with Christ-like affection. And may Covenant Fellowship Church be a church that abounds in Christ-like affection. And then third and last mark of a people shaped by grace, apathy is replaced with earnest prayer. Apathy is replaced with earnest prayer. To be the community that God has called us to be, we desperately need the help of God himself. We cannot do it on our own. There are, there are too many churches and too many relationships that are not marked by the qualities in this passage. And though we have tasted this gratefulness, this joy, this love throughout our history as a church. It has been our experience from 1984 to this day. We cannot and must not presume that these qualities will automatically continue into the future. In fact, they won't automatically continue into the future. Not every member experiences gratitude more than grumbling. Not every member experiences joy more than discouragement or warm-hearted affection more than bitterness and conflict and criticism. And none of us have arrived at that place where there is no room for growth. And hear this, this is why we must pray. This is why we, we must pray. I pity the sad Christian who is content with the status quo and no longer cries out to God, for great things. The church in Philippi was strong. The church in Philippi was healthy, and yet Paul prays earnestly for their spiritual growth. He prays for more. He asks for God to move and do what only God can do. Do you realize prayer is one of the greatest privileges we have in life? I hope when, when you consider prayer, you don't mostly think duty, responsibility, though it is that. I hope you think privilege, blessing, that we should marvel that sinners like us get to enter the throne room of a holy God. This is possible only through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Thank God for the gift of prayer. Paul's prayer is there in verses 9 through 11. And it is intended by God to inform our prayers for ourselves and for the church. D.A. Carson has uh, an outstanding book. It used to be called A Call to Spiritual Reformation. It was republished as uh, Praying with Paul, and it is a, a book that studies all of the, the prayers of Paul in the New Testament, Praying with Paul. He says this, few of Paul's prayers have greater potential to help us surmount the hurdles of spiritual dryness 
and lack of faith than the one in Philippians 1, 9 through 11. Are you experiencing spiritual dryness? Are you aware of of apathy and indifference in your heart? Is there a lack of faith that you can change in some area? This prayer is a gift from God and it provides the help that every one of us need today. And it is my prayer, he says, that your love may abound more and more. So you find it difficult to love certain people? Guess what? God is a God of all power and we can go to him and pray that he would cause us to abound in love. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. What's he praying for? I wonder, what do you pray for? This is not a prayer for material riches. This is not a prayer for cultural influence or for the removal of trials. There are many things that are fine to pray. There are some things that are essential to pray. This is a prayer that the church would be what God has called us to be in this world. It is a prayer for spiritual growth. It's a prayer that we would grow in love, that we would grow in knowledge, that we'd grow in purity and in righteousness. Lord, give us more love for Christ. Lord, give us more love for each other. Give us knowledge and discernment. Oh, how we need to grow. And God, we can't grow apart from your help. Verse 10, help us so that we may approve what is excellent, so that, so that you might know what really matters in life so that you might approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That is a big, D.A. Carson says it's a a prayer for revival. It It is a big prayer Our desire is to live in light of that coming day, the day of Christ, and to be pure and blameless and filled with the fruit of righteousness in our lives. And you know what? Here's here's good news. This fruit of righteousness comes how? What does the text say? The fruit of righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. All fruit in the Christian life comes not by our own power, but because we have been planted close to the river called Christ. And he produces fruitfulness in our lives. And we have the sure promise, the certain word, that when he comes again, God will finish what he started in your life. That's going to happen. That's your future. Verse 6, I am sure of this. This is not a point that is in question. This is not a point that we can afford to doubt, both in our own lives and in the lives of others. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will most certainly bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God started a work in your life, and God is not a quitter. 
God does not abandon the work that he started. He started a work in your life just as he did when he opened the heart of Lydia, just as he did with the Philippian jailer. God is the one who started the work, and God is the one who will bring it to completion. Someone said Paul's confidence is not in the Christianity of Christians, but in the Godness of God. That's our confidence, not the Christianity of Christians. Our confidence is the Godness of God. However slow the progress, you may have resonated with that word earlier, the you're a kid on a tricycle and you're stuck in the mud. However slow the progress, however imperceptible the growth, God is faithful. God is trustworthy. God is at work. God is sustaining you. And God will most certainly bring his good work in you to completion. When God... When God started that work in my life, I was, I was around 17 years old, I believe, when I became a Christian. It was right around when God did that work in my life. It was in 1998 when a Sovereign Grace album came out. And it was the, it, sometimes, you know, you just latch onto an album and you listen to it again and again. The album was called Lift a Shout. And it was an album that was recorded by Covenant Fellowship Church. Yeah, it has some bangers on that album. And um, it was recorded 25 years ago in the Robert C. Gauntlet Center, just a year or so before the church moved into this building. Talk about the role of memory. The first day until now. My friend Dave Fournier wrote a song that was on that album. I saw Dave and greeted him this morning. The song is called What You Began. What you began, you will finish. By your strong hand, I will prevail. Every trial, you work in it, and your faithfulness can't fail. Though I do not claim to understand the mysteries of your sovereign plan, I know the good work you began, you will finish. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Friends, this is the confidence that we have today, and it's the reason, it's the whole reason that we can lean into the book of Philippians, anticipating what God will do, how he will meet us. Even today, grumbling in our hearts is being replaced with joy-filled gratitude, and selfishness is being replaced with Christ-like affection, and apathy is being replaced with earnest prayer, all to the glory and praise of God. Just as we started by singing a prayer, I want to invite each one of you at the outset of this series to join it, to pray this prayer in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, and to pray that God continues to meet with us, to shape us, and to transform us by the power of his word. I'd like to invite everyone to stand. As I was reading and have been studying the book of Philippians, this theme of joy is so pronounced throughout and, um, and is repeated throughout. I encourage you early on, look for some time this next week, read through the book of Philippians, anticipate what's to come. Joy is mentioned again and again. We've called the series Gospel Happiness. I wanted to take some time here at the outset and pray for a particular group. And that is those, if you would just say that in life, your 
where you are today, that you feel as though you're losing the fight for joy. Joy is a fight. <laughs> it doesn't come easily in a fallen world full of trials. And I believe that God wants to minister to and meet with those of you who are just saying, yeah, I, it may be a long-standing thing. It may be something tied to this week or just this morning where you feel like where I currently am, I feel like I'm losing the fight for joy and I want God's help in that. I just want to take a moment to pray for you. If that's you, can you raise your hand? Anyone feel like you're losing the fight for joy currently? Thank you. If you see a brother or sister with their hands raised, let's gather around them and I'll lead us in prayer. We're going to pray for an outpouring of the Spirit's joy and I believe God is eager to hear and answer our prayers. Father, you have not left us to ourselves but have given us your Spirit and you say the fruit of your Spirit is joy. Lord, there is a joy that the Apostle Paul knew that enabled him to sing in the darkest night. That enabled him to sing though he was imprisoned. That enabled him to rejoice though circumstances were against him. Father, we ask that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would break into the lives of these brothers and sisters who have so humbly acknowledged their need for an increase in joy. Father, would you pour out your spirit upon them and pour out the joy of heaven upon them. Lord, you said that you desire for your joy to be in us and your joy to be full. You not only call us to rejoice in you always, but you empower us to that end. So would you pour out the joy of heaven even now? Lord, upon these brothers and sisters, may there be an outpouring of joy that sustains them through difficulty, that gives them hope, in the midst of uncertainty. Lord, remind them of who they are in Christ. Remind them of the riches of grace and peace that have come to them. And may there be the rising presence of joy in the Lord even now. And Lord, we pray it not only for these brothers and sisters, but for all of us, that we might be a people growing and abounding in gospel happiness who glorify you through the joy that we have in you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.